0: Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM 820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is uh, Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to be looking at the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. It's the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew's version of the transfiguration of the Lord. It's a fascinating gospel, and it lends itself to all sorts of uh, interpretations. But we're going to try and look and see maybe more deeply what the actual intention of the gospel is and what this, what this unfolding of this mysterious reality becomes um, in our lives. And the gospel begins with, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain where they could be alone. It's interesting, once again, Peter, James, and John seem to be the inner circle of the apostles around Jesus. And this story in the gospel follows almost immediately upon the story of Peter's confession. That uh, when, when Peter says, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And then they say, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. But he said, then who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to tell them what that means. And Peter, of course, says, well, no, it can't mean that because that's not what I want it to mean. And that's not the way that this is supposed to to be fulfilled in the world in which we live. And so he was presuming himself to interpret the mind of God despite what God's mind really was, something that is not foreign to probably most of us. So that's why this this particular gospel, though, has to be connected, as it is liturgically, it has to be connected with the, uh, with the testimony and the witness of Peter. So they go up on a high mountain, and there in their presence, the gospel says he was transfigured. That word transfigured means metamorphosized, metamorpho. And it shows up, really, in the, in, in the New Testament only two other times. And those two other times are... Um, in Paul's letters, once to the Corinthians and um, once to the Romans, and so we what we have then is the very unique use of a word for a very unique situation. In Paul's letter to the Romans and to the Corinthians, he's talking about basically the transformation of the inner human person. When the gospel is using that word, he's talking about the interior revelation of Jesus. But one of the ways that oftentimes this gets interpreted, and maybe it just shouldn't be exclusively this way, one of the ways it gets interpreted is, well, you know, the apostle saw who Jesus really was and then it's covered back up again but but that's not exactly what the transfiguration is and the transfiguration pushes the consciousness of the apostles into the future and especially with the coming of elias and of moses Um, who are eschatological figures, that is, figures that talk about the final age, the age of the Lord in the Old Testament. And so Moses and Elias then are standing, not actually at the beginning of time in the Law and the Prophets, but they are the images of the ends of time, when the Law and the Prophets are completely fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. So that we can't lock this transformation then into the present moment of the apostles, because this is taking Taking them somewhere. And in taking them somewhere, it is also showing them something of the fulfillment of what Jesus was talking about when he rebuked Peter, when Peter denied God's plan for, for the Messianic Kingdom, the Messianic coming after his testimony. And that's one of the reasons, too, why in the testimony of Peter when Jesus says, you know, you didn't come up with this on your own, you know, my heavenly Father has given this to you. In other words, Peter demonstrates very clearly in his rebuking of Jesus that he's left to himself, he's not going to come up with the right answers. And, uh, and I think that oftentimes we too, I mean, this is one of the great temptations of Christianity is uh is to come up with our own answers rather than God's answers and that's something that Catholicism stands pretty much and orthodoxy of course stands pretty much alone in the midst of the Christian milieu saying you know that we have to be disciplined by the voice of God and that we ourselves are not the origin of uh, of biblical truth or theological truth it's uh, there's a there's a great explanation that You know, experience does not create reality. Experience helps us to discover reality. So it's not like I had this experience and therefore I proclaim this to be true. It's I had this experience and if it's authentic, then I have discovered something that belongs not to myself but to the living God. And that's exactly the struggle that Peter had in Matthew sixteen eighteen, when he identifies Jesus as the Christ, but then goes on to say, but I'm going to interpret that the way I want to instead of the way the Messiah wants to. Well, here then, we have to have, that. the reason I go back to that is because we have to have that in mind in order that we can understand that the transfiguration is not just, just not a revelation of the present, but it's a revelation of the future to to the apostles not that Jesus is not god in his present age and not that Jesus is not god in his incarnation but in his glory where he reveals himself in his fullness is something that comes with the manifestations in the resurrection and in the post-resurrection time of the christian community and also of the life of christ so here then once this happens and once they are illuminated with great light then it says, "Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, and they were talking with Jesus." Um, well, in Luke's gospel, it tells us what they were talking about, and in Luke's gospel, what they were talking about was what they called his exodus, and therefore his glorification. And in John's gospel, the glorification of Jesus is the is the crucifixion. And we say, "Well, wow, how can that be?" You know, there was a there was a great tendency back oh i don't know in the 70s or 80s or something to kind of become anti image of the crucifix saying why should that model and um image, you know, kind of be the, the centerpiece of, of uh, our Christian witness. So what we need is a happy Jesus or a risen Jesus or, or something like that on the back wall of our churches in order to give people hope and cheer them up and so forth. Total misunderstanding of what the crucifixion is, total misunderstanding, because what the crucifixion is, basically, is a symbol God's love for humanity. That's hardly maudlin. And I think that if any of us go deep into our own lives, we do know that there is no sacrifice that we can make that is adequate to fulfill the love that we might have for another. And that love itself is not not just always serendipitous. Sometimes love is deepest when it takes from us almost everything that we have. If you take, for instance, a a parent tending for a dying child, if you take a spouse tending to their dying spouse, if you take something uh, or someone giving their life to defend someone that they love, is this maudlin? Is this dark? Is this terrible? Or is this really the real exposition of the human spirit, the real opening up to, to, to our sight, of the depths of the human heart and the depths of the human soul. That's what the crucifix is. That's why John can say this is glory, because this is the showing what the Lord Jesus is willing to do, to give of himself for us. It is a symbol of enormous charity, enormous generosity, and great and deep love. It should be the central figure of our faith. For that deep love, that deep generosity, that deep giving is the deepest expression of our Christian faith and the deepest expression of God's love for us and our love for others. So that, yes, so that when they speak of his exodus in in Luke, when they speak of his glory, they're speaking, you know, we think, well, the only glory is the resurrection. Not 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 for the evangelist. John is not the only. It's not the only glory. Is the resurrection glorious? Of course it's glorious. Is the resurrection therefore possible without the crucifixion? No. And so the two are inseparable events, absolutely inseparable events. And it is to this then that Moses and Elijah and the glorification of Jesus appear as a future reality, as saying in fact, to teaching in a way the apostles, teaching especially Peter, who having been able to testify to the truth of who Jesus is, then has the capacity then to say, even though I'm saying who you are, I'm not going to allow you to say what you know to be true, because I want to reinterpret reality according to the way that I want it to be. And Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking as man, not as God. Here, he's saying to them, think as God thinks, see what God sees. And especially when Moses and Elijah appear, the law and the prophets, they appear conversing with the glorified Lord. They appear, therefore, at what is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus? It is the fulfillment of the Messianic mission. It is the fulfillment, the opening up and the exposition of the Messianic secret. It is the fulfillment of the role of the Messiah in the midst of humanity, in the midst of the world. It is therefore the culmination of the visions and the hopes of the law and the prophets of Elijah and Moses. And they are there then to converse with the fulfillment of everything that they have prefigured in the Old Testament. Um, We've seen this before and we saw that and I've mentioned it before as part of the uh, the mystical tradition of the Fathers of the Church that somehow that somehow or other that the truth and the mystical meaning of Scripture and the sacraments is the interior presence of Jesus Christ, the interior presence of the Word of the living God, and that for us to perceive that is to discover the mystery of Christ's presence among us. Here, in this Transfiguration story, is the fulfillment of the mystical tradition of the Old Testament. It is the manifestation of what the Law and the Prophets was revealing, what the Law and the Prophets were talking about, what the Law and the Prophets were hoping for. That's the intention of this. It's not to say, this is what's going on right now in your life. No, it isn't to say that at all. It is to say that what is going on in your life leads somewhere. It leads somewhere into a phenomenon that is beyond our expectation, beyond our capacity to know, to understand, uh, and to project. And even though Peter can say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he follows up by saying, by showing that he has no idea what that means. Here, Jesus is showing him what it means. This is what it means, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is that I stand at the end of time in the fulfillment of times, hopes and expectations, and that this glorification of the Lord is therefore the final point of the whole created order. What you are looking forward to then is the day, the great day of salvation, the great day of the Lord. And so then the gospel goes on Peter then immediately, of course, wants to celebrate the Feast of Booths. We'll build three tents here and, you know, we'll celebrate the presence of God and so forth. But God, interestingly enough, simply interrupts him. He said, and he was still speaking when suddenly a bright cloud covered them with a the shadow. And from the cloud there came a voice which said, this is my son, the beloved. He enjoys my favor. listen. him. And so basically, again, it's a lesson that goes back to the testimony of Peter. Peter, listen to him. Don't tell him what to do. Don't tell him how to do it. Don't constantly have a better idea than God has. Listen to my son. And if you would listen to him, then what you say would make more sense. And, you know, I think we can project this into the whole story of Christianity, this idea of listening to God rather than telling God what to do or what to say or how to say it. This, I think, is something that is tied up in the whole mystery of the church itself. And it's part of the greater, more dramatic mystery of God's revelation to us. And, you know, without constantly, you know, pounding on the separation of Christianity in the sixteenth century, that that Jesus sets up here in Matthew 16, 18, and now confirms it in Matthew 17, 1 to 9, on in the story of the transfiguration and the instruction of the apostles as to what the meaning of the Messianic Age is all about and how it will ultimately end. And how it ends in the fulfillment of everything that has been that has transacted between God and humanity since he first revealed himself to Abraham. All right? And so it is to for us. It is tied up on upon this rock, I will build my church." And then as the church gathers after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon that church and upon the the apostles and the virgin and reveals to them and opens to them then the fullness of the truth of who Jesus is. And those men then who were timid— and who are unsure of themselves have an insight and a depth and a wisdom that belongs to them through the holy spirit that comes to them in the gathering of the apostolic church and that is therefore the substance and the basis of the charisma of the proclamation as they go out and bring thousands into belief in jesus christ That's the way the church is supposed to function, and that's the way the church in its own human frailty and human weakness has functioned since the beginning, since the day of Pentecost. And it is therefore necessary for us, for the fullness and the whole depth of the human experience of the divine to be wrapped up together with the apostolic community, the apostolic college, and uh, to be able to, be able to uh, speak with the voice of the Spirit within the community rather than with our own wisdom. Peter spoke with his own wisdom when he testified to Jesus was the Messiah. He is speaking with his own wisdom again in the midst of this book, in the midst of this, of this particular phenomenon of the, trans, of the transfiguration. And it's kind of interesting in a way that as he's in the midst of uh, explaining something he doesn't know what he's talking about concerning the Lord Jesus and his manifestation, God simply ignores him and interrupts him with the truth. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Don't listen to yourself. Listen to him. And it's it's all a question, honestly, of humility and pride. You know, humility is not the denigration of the self. Humility is the truth of the self. And if we, uh, if we are truthful about ourself in relationship to God, if that's the case, if that's the case, then in fact we can't help but be humble. For when we compare ourselves with the living God, the question becomes, then who am I? And the great saints are able to see that and understand that. Um, I think we mentioned once before this idea that saints talk. the great saints talk about their sinfulness. Um, and we say, oh, well, that's just kind of, you know, that's just pro forma. That's just something that they really kind of have to do so that, d- so that people don't think they're prideful. That's not true. The fact is they do have sins, and the fact is they are sinners. And the fact is that they are humble enough to acknowledge and admit that even its most subtle presence and even its, its most subtle form within them. Most of us never get to that level of subtlety, but we do certainly know that our behavior is able to be critiqued and our behavior is almost always less than it could be and that it should be if we're honest with ourselves. Sometimes it's very hard to come to confession and say, well, you know, what am I going to say? You know, I haven't done anything objectively wrong since the last time, and that might be absolutely true. It might be absolutely true. We're not supposed to make things up, but look deep in the heart. What darkness is there? All of us have that. All of us have these blockages within us. All of us have these weaknesses within us. You know, it's like St. Claude Colombier says, you know, that, that that a Christian is never scandalized, for we all walk along the precipice, and it should not be surprising when some fall over. And I think that as we walk along the precipice, The only thing, the only thing that keeps us from becoming the victims of the chasm, the victims of the abyss, is God's love for us and our openness to that, our willingness to receive that in our lives, and our willingness to receive it in our lives in such a way that we are enabled by grace to cooperate with the Lord and in that cooperation make the decisions that keep us from falling into serious sin. I think that somehow or other the precariousness of human virtue, of human goodness, is something we should always be aware of, something that should always be deep within our hearts. And those who are honest and truthful and insightful are the ones who understand how precarious our life with God really is in so many ways, especially with the great power of Satan around us in the world as it says, when, for instance, in the temptations of Christ, these are my kingdoms. We are very much aware of that, very much aware of that. We have but to look at the great geopolitical situation of the contemporary world. and And with a deep sigh of understanding and insight, we know that Satan is present, that the power of darkness is present in much of the geopolitical movements of our age, of our time. And we are not exempt from that. We are not, therefore, the ones who are only virtuous and right and true, and everyone else is somehow or other lesser than ourselves. That's not humility and that's not truth. So, looking back now at the gospel, we come to understand then that God sees fit, God sees fit to interrupt Peter's nonsense. And as God interrupts it, he ends up with this mandate, listen to him. That's what we're supposed to do. How do we hear his voice? How do we hear his voice? We don't do it by telling him what to say. And we do do it by understanding that this is a communal revelation to the apostolic community, which has given birth to the church and that lives and dwells in the midst of it. So much of the modern theological reflection sets out to demolish this ep- apostolic witness. It started in it started in spades back in the 60s with the theology of revelation of Gabriel Moran. It worked its way into the religion textbooks, uh, beginning with the, the uh, St. Mary's Press in, in Minnesota and becoming then kind of the the pervasive catechetical mode of the next several decades that somehow or other brought into question the objectivity of the apostolic college as existing and present in the magisterial life of the church, and therefore trying to remove revelation from the apostolic community and embedding it in our own subjectivity, in our own personal self. And that still goes on today. There's a movement uh, called a recontextualization going on at the University of Louvain, in which it turns revelation simply into pure subjective consciousness. Um, that's not that's not what that's not what God's saying in the story of the Transfiguration. God's voice interrupts the human reflection and the human understanding and the simply, the merely human insight and wisdom, and says, no, listen to him, not to yourself. Listen, because that's what I'm telling you right now. I'm not even listening to you. I'm interrupting you, because what you're saying has nothing to do with the event that you are witnessing. And and I think that this is exactly what happens today that the Lord God is interrupting us over and over again and saying, what you are saying is not authentic, that listen to the Lord, listen to the magisterial tradition of the church, which is the apostolic community guided by the spirit and sustained by the spirit, here in our contemporary world. And so when when we look at this story of the transfiguration, we ought to really reflect and pray over it. Remember, and I think this is a great image we can take from it, whenever we think we've got all the answers, just remember that when Peter had all the answers, God interrupted him and said, listen, listen to the Son, and not to yourself. And I think that that's one of the great lessons we can personally take from this. The other great lessons that we can personally take from this is that the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets, the fulfillment of the Messianic Age lies ahead of us, not necessarily completely in the midst of it. Here, too, in the Transfiguration, it's present. They're seeing it, it's present to them, but its fullness of manifestation is yet to come. And so when we we talk about the uh, the realized eschatology in the Gospels and in and in the you know, theological life of the Church, yes, it has been because the crucifixion and resurrection has taken place. There is a presence of it within us. There is a realization of that within the Church in the modern age and in every age. But the complete manifestation and fullness is something that lies in the future there is, for instance, an avenue into that future, an avenue into that fullness. And I think that we get a great insight into that from St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. And she centers that future as present in the Eucharist. And she sees that in this Eucharistic reality, the presence of the fulfillment of the messianic age takes place in our own small and personal way in the reception of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the crucified and risen Lord. But as a manifestation to, the, to creation itself, it lies before us, ahead of us. We creep along the way by participating in it little by little, especially as St. Elizabeth says, in our Eucharistic relationship with the Lord, where we enter into him and he enters into us, to be fully realized in the ages that are to come. And that uh, while we taste, as St. Elizabeth says, we taste, for instance, the future, we taste the eschaton, we taste um, eternal life. We do not have the full realization of it yet, for it has not manifested itself at the end of time in the great coming of the Lord in the great day of the Lord, the manifestation of the crucified and risen Christ as Son of God and as second person of the blessed Trinity, when all things will come to conclusion, to finality, and all things enter into the eternal mystery of the living God. This, then, is what we strive for, and this is what we wait for. And along the way, let us listen to him and learn from him and learn from his words to us in the Gospels, learn from his words to us in the Church. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM 820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.